you have a Bible with you this morning, open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 14. We're going to finish, Lord willing, this chapter this morning as we uh, have uh, opportunity to move from John 14 next week to John 15. And in your bulletin this morning, if you are taking notes, you have an outline there for you that you can fill in if you want. We don't have the PowerPoint, but I could try to uh, help pay special attention to some of those blanks. And the title of the sermon this morning is, That the World May Know that the world may know John chapter 14, verses 28 through the end of the chapter. The apostle John writes this. He's speaking, of course, of Jesus. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer walk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Dear God, we do pray that you would help us to understand these last words of Jesus here in John 14 this morning, especially as he talks about that he does what he does so that the world would know that he loves the Father. Help us to understand and apply these truths in our hearts and our lives this week, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I were to ask you the question, who is the greatest witness of Christ or the witness of God or the witness of faith that the world has ever known, who would you say? If we were to look at the history of the Bible, we could certainly see many incredible witnesses for God. I mean, there's Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation. He loved God so much that he was willing to sacrifice his only son out of his devotion to God. Certainly, there was also Moses, who was fearless in the face of Pharaoh and demanded that God would, that Pharaoh would let God's people go, right? Moses was God's chosen servant to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt and even crossed on dry ground across the Red Sea. And God met with him on Mount Sinai. Powerful witnesses for God, Abraham, Moses. There's King David who went from being a shepherd boy to slaying Goliath. And eventually he was the king of Israel. David was a man after God's own heart. And the Lord uh, just used David in a mighty way. There's Elijah who defeated the 450 prophets of Baal. And he went up into heaven in a fiery chariot. There's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, incredible prophets of God who spoke the truth without reservation. There's, of course, Daniel who would not defile himself or deny his God in any way. Even though he was thrown into the lion's den, Daniel stayed faithful to the Lord. In the New Testament, there's John the Baptist who came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And Jesus said about John the Baptist that he was the greatest of those born of women. There's John the apostle who wrote this gospel, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the only one there at the foot of the cross. There's Peter, the leader of the disciples, who preached a powerful sermon of repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. There's Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who was radically converted on the road to Damascus and then spent the rest of his days boldly preaching and proclaiming salvation, and it comes only through Jesus Christ. 
through church history, which our students were just briefed on a little bit this past weekend. There was the church fathers of Polycarp and Tertullian and Augustine. During the Reformation, there's Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox. In the modern missionary movement, we have William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Jim Elliott. In the evangelistic crusades of the 20th century, there was Billy Sunday. There was D.L. Moody and Billy Graham. But my question to you this morning is who is the greatest witness of the gospel that the world has ever known? And the answer has to be Jesus Christ. The greatest witness of the gospel that the world has ever known is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the greatest preacher. Jesus was the greatest shepherd. Jesus was the greatest evangelist that the world has ever known. Jesus gave the clearest sermons. He performed the greatest miracles, and he showed the greatest humility. Jesus was the most passionate, the most daring, and the most sacrificial witness to the gospel that the world has ever seen. No one ever preached like he preached. No one ever confronted sin like he confronted sin. And no one has ever loved like he loved. Jesus lived and he bled and he died for sinners like you and like me. And what a witness to the gospel. Jesus was the good news of forgiveness in the flesh. Jesus is the word of God who walked among us. Jesus testified over and over and over again of the love and the mercy of the Father. And Jesus said what he said, and he did what he did so that the world would know that he loves his Father. Jesus is the greatest witness that the world has ever known. And this morning, as we look at John 14, I want to ask you four questions that will help point us to this fact that Jesus is the greatest witness who ever lived. So four questions, and then we'll seek to answer each one. Question number one, it's there in your outline. Why should we rejoice that Jesus is going to the Father? Verse 28, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he said, you heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, if you'll remember, we're looking at the upper room discourse. We're about 12 to 18 hours away from the cross, and Jesus wants to use these last hours to encourage his disciples. He wants to strengthen them. He wants to comfort them with the truth. And no doubt the disciples were saddened about Jesus' departure. I mean, all of a sudden, Jesus announces his ministry. He's been with them three plus years. He's been spending every moment with them, and they loved Christ, and they loved to follow him, and he's such a powerful and a strong leader, and no doubt they're a little afraid of what may happen to this gospel ministry once their leader leaves. No doubt they're bothered by the thought of being left all alone. In fact, it may even be that disciples were being a little bit selfish, As Jesus is telling them in this upper room discourse, it's about to happen. They might have been thinking, but we don't want you to go. We want you to stay right here. But the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, that love does not insist on its own way or love does not seek its own. And so Jesus is challenging his disciples in this verse, verse 28, that if they really love him, then they would be rejoicing 
as Jesus is telling them that he is going to the Father. This is not a time for sadness or disappointment. This is a time for rejoicing and for these disciples to find their happiness in Jesus fulfilling the Father's will. And so we could rightly again ask the question, well, why should the disciples or why should we rejoice this morning that Jesus was about to leave to go to the Father? Let me give you four answers to that question. A, Jesus will have accomplished redemption. That's your first blank. Jesus will have accomplished redemption for mankind. I mean, think about it. In order for Jesus to go to the Father, first, he has to die. Jesus will not skip death in order to reconvene his time with the Father in heaven. Jesus will go and be with the Father, but he will go and be with the Father through death, through atonement, through the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so part of what Jesus is saying is like, I'm going to go be with the Father, and the path between here and the Father is the crucifixion. And the crucifixion is the whole reason that I've come to provide salvation for the world. And so Jesus will die on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, and in so doing, he provided redemption for mankind. He paid our sin debt on the cross as our atonement. He was our substitute. He was our redeemer. And Jesus reminds his disciples that he had said earlier in the same chapter, John 14, verse 2, have I told you? Look at it there at the beginning of the chapter. He's been telling him this. Have I told you that I go and prepare a place for you? Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. But between him going and preparing and coming back is this idea of him going to the cross. And so Jesus is going to the Father. That's actually a reason this morning For you and I to rejoice because it means redemption has been accomplished and now there is a way that we can abide in Christ and for him to live in us. Jesus inside of us is better than Jesus beside us. Get the idea? We want Jesus beside us as the disciples did. We didn't want him to go to the Father. We want him right beside us. But Jesus is teaching us throughout the scripture that Jesus inside of us through the cross through redemption, by faith, is better than having him here on earth at his first advent without going to the cross. If he doesn't go to the cross, then he's not loving us. And so we've got to understand here that he must be crucified, and then he will be raised from the dead, and that through the redemption of lost sinners, he now dwells in the hearts of those who turn to him. Now, another reason that I would give that we should be rejoicing this morning that Jesus was going to depart and go be with the Father, B, in your outline, says Jesus will be restored in his full glory. And we've already talked about how love does not seek its own. So the real love that we should have should be, I want what's best for God, and I want what's best for Christ. And the temptation the disciples had was they were being a little selfish, which is why here in this verse 28, Jesus is actually rebuking them, saying, you should be rejoicing. You should be rejoicing that I'm about to go through with this because this is the love of the Father. And this reference about Jesus going to the Father is about Jesus' restoration and his exaltation that will be happening at the resurrection and at the ascension. Remember, it was at the incarnation 
that Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. You see, Jesus left heaven. He was willing to be incarnated into human flesh so that he could save us from our sin, but now it's time for him to go back home. Though Jesus has never sinned, he would die on a cross, he would pay for sin's debt, and he did, as he came here, he did individually give up the temporary use of his power to some degree. That's part of what the incarnation is. He's still fully God, and he's still fully man, and yet, while he never stopped being God for one single moment, he did become a man, which means he experienced fatigue and hunger and thirst. And Jesus was obedient to come to earth. And he was, he was representing and serving his father while he was here on earth. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this may look like a perceived weakness, the fact that the God-man, Jesus, would die. And yet in this apparent weakness, God was glorified. In fact, Jesus says here in verse 28, the Father is greater than I. At the end, he says, in that, that verse, he says, hey, I got to go back to the Father, and you should be rejoicing about this, for the Father is greater than I. Just a comment about that. Many false teachers insist that Jesus was inferior to the Father. And sometimes a, a cult or a false uh, religion will take a verse like this and say, see, See, Jesus and God are not on the same par because Jesus says the Father is greater than I. And so Muslims and Mormons and Jews and Jehovah Witnesses would all insist that Jesus was less than the Father. Maybe he was a prophet and he was a good guy, but he's not God. They deny the deity of Christ. But Jesus, by no means, is denying his deity. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus makes himself equal with God. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham, I was and I am. Jesus says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Here in John 14, 9, Jesus had already said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the question would rightly be asked, well, what does he mean then when he says the Father is greater than I? Well, I would say he is not speaking of his essential nature as God. Rather, he is talking about his submissive role during the incarnation of his mission on earth. As one theologian has said, quote, in essence and being, the Father and the Son are eternally co-equal, but in role and function, the Son submitted himself to the Father's will at the incarnation. And so with this statement, when he says, Jesus says, the Father is greater than I, he's simply taking the humble servant role that he had assumed during his time on earth. It is only in that sense that the Father was greater than the Son. But that time is now coming to an end. His mission on earth is almost over. And you may even get a sense here in John 14, 28, that Jesus is beginning to long for heaven. He's beginning to want to be back home. I mean, maybe you've been on a long trip or a long vacation with the family, and you're glad that you went, and you had a great time, and then after a few days, what do you start longing for? 
You're like, I'm kind of ready to get back home. There it is from one of the young ones. Down here. I just want to get back home. I want to get back home to my bed and to what I'm familiar with and where I'm comfortable. And it's possible that Jesus maybe here is even getting that sense of he's kind of looking forward. Like his mission's almost up and he's almost done. And he can't wait to get back to the Father. And we ought to be rejoicing with him about that excitement that's in his heart. And when Jesus would return to heaven, he would be restored in the fellowship that he had with God from the very beginning. Jesus says it this way in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So I'm saying it's a good thing that Jesus is going away. It's a good thing that Jesus is going back to the Father. In Jesus' coming, he accomplished redemption for mankind. And in Jesus' going, he is restored to his former glory. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Jesus was never planning to set up his earthly kingdom at his first advent. He was following his Father's orders to come. And now he's following his father's orders to go. And we have to rejoice in the wisdom of God. And we can learn from these disciples even just to how to have faith that God knows what he's doing. It's a good thing that Jesus is going back to the father. In fact, a fourth or a third answer to that question, why should we rejoice that Jesus is going to be back with the father? Number three or C in your outline, Jesus will be interceding for his own. He will be interceding for his own, like good things are going to happen when Jesus gets back to be with the Father. When Jesus goes to heaven, what will he be doing? Well, part of what he will be doing is interceding for us. And the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is our permanent high priest who continues forever. And one of his priestly roles is for him to pray for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, consequently... He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Man, I love that verse. I mean, don't you love it when you know somebody's praying for you? I have felt so blessed, so encouraged by so many here in our church and so many others that I know who over the last few months have been like, Adam, we're praying for you. Pastor, we're praying for you. Adam, we're praying for God to give you wisdom and humility and grace and opportunity to to share the gospel. And I just love that. I mean, don't you just love that when people come up to you? We've been praying for you. We've been praying for you. We've been praying for you. Well, how much more encouraging is it when Jesus is like, I ever live to intercede for you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for believers in the world that you would be faithful and that you would be strong and that you would live a life of faith. How awesome is that? Jesus is praying for you. If you're having a bad day this week, you should just be like, huh, Jesus is praying for me. Like right now, you you know, you have a depressed thought. You're going through a rough time. Just remind yourself of what the scripture says. He ever lives to intercede for me. How encouraging is that? We see the example of this again in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 9. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. John 17, 17, he prays that that God would sanctify them in truth, that your word is true. He's praying for your sanctification. He's praying for the word of God to bear fruit in your life as you're made more like Christ every day. 
And some people call this period of time while Jesus is in heaven between the first advent and the second advent, after the resurrection and the ascension, but before the rapture or the second coming, some people call this the session of Christ. And the most important session of all is the session of Jesus Christ in heaven when Yahweh said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. He was saying, be seated in the highest place of authority in the universe. And so in Psalm 110, this prophetic psalm, as David was saying by the Holy Spirit, that when the Messiah had finished his labor in this world, he would be exalted to heaven and enthroned at the right hand of God. And we declare that these things took place every time we recite the Apostles' Creed, which affirms that Jesus, quote, ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God. This was the early church's confession of the belief in the importance of the session of Christ, that he's in heaven, interceding for us at this very moment. And so this is a time where Jesus is active in heaven, as we are to be active here on earth. And in a sense, Jesus is holding the ropes for us. Jesus is providing a prayer covering for us. Jesus is choosing to be there in heaven, praying for us while we're here living out our mission on earth. And so I hope he's pleased with your mission here on earth. I hope that he's encouraged by your obedience. I hope he's honored with your worship. I hope that he's magnified in your life. Jesus set up the business of saving souls, and now Jesus is running that business from heaven. And we have the opportunity every day to serve him and to live for him. We're here on earth continuing to carry out that responsibility of being a witness for Christ. And one last reason that we should be rejoicing that Jesus is going to the Father, D, in your outline, Jesus will be sending us the Holy Spirit. And that's part of what this chapter has been all about. We have taken our time in John 14, haven't we? And it's been so very good. And Jesus, throughout this chapter, has been talking about asking the Father to send us another helper, verse 16, who will be with us forever. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit who is coming in power and coming to dwell in his church and to dwell inside of you. Last week, we looked at verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything or all that I have said to you. The Bible says that God gives us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to come alongside of us and to instruct us and to encourage us and to empower us through the word of God. The Holy Spirit is also a spirit of wisdom who gives us revelation of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus Christ to us is through his word. We've talked a lot about how it's the spirit that we know uh, that gives us the word of God and he calls us out of darkness into light and he shows us salvation and sanctification all through the word of God. The spirit also is called the spirit of truth. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth for he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. We've been talking about how, how does the Holy Spirit speak to us? He speaks to us wisdom and he speaks to us truth. And the way that he speaks wisdom and truth to us is through the Bible. It's through the word of God. It's God breathed. You want to hear from the Holy Spirit? Open the word. 
He's partly responsible for giving it to us. You want the wisdom and the knowledge and the truth of the Holy Spirit? You better be rooted and grounded in the Scripture. I was telling the new members class how I used to be in some different charismatic settings when I was a kid growing up. And I remember this one time, this pastor went off in this charismatic church about all kind of stuff. And I got so upset at him that I decided to turn chapter and verse to a particular issue. And I walked right up to that pastor after the service. And I said, pastor, I just think you were off today. And he's like, what? And I'm like, well, the Bible says, and I read him a chapter and a couple of verses. And he looked at me and he said, son, you don't need your Bible. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you don't need the Bible. You just know it's him because of what you're feeling and how you're, you're you know, feeling his presence in your life. And I'm like, well, pastor, I don't ever think the Holy Spirit speaks without this book because what you were saying contradicts what's in this book. And that's the kind of stuff that we're facing in our world today, that the Holy Spirit that the Father is going to send to us on the request of Jesus is both continuing to teach us all things from the Bible and to remind us of all things that we need to know so that we can live this life. And it's all from God's word. Aren't you thankful that Jesus is going back to the Father? You know, in one sense, if you were a disciple in the upper room, you probably would have been like, oh, you know, Jesus, I don't want you to go. It's just so good to have you here. And yet then we realize that they're being rebuked. You got to rejoice that I'm going because as I'm going, I'll be able to intercede for you, accomplish redemption. I'll be able to send my spirit to you. We got to trust in God's plan. You know, sometimes things don't happen like we think. If, if it was according to our wisdom, we might have been like the disciples, just holding on to Jesus. We don't want you to go. And yet we've got to be willing to let people go. We've got to be willing to let people out of this church sometimes go out into the mission field. And you've got to be willing to let your kids grow up and go out. And you've got to be willing for God to sometimes take people back home. We've got to just trust that whatever God's doing and however he's doing it, he's right and he's filled with wisdom. And it's going to be for his glory and it's going to be for your good. Well, let's ask a second question this morning, if we can, that points to the fact that Jesus is the greatest witness the world has ever known. Number two, why does Jesus tell us things beforehand? Look at verse 29. He says, and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Why does he tell us beforehand? Let me give you three answers to that question. A, your next blank says, to show us that he is God. He tells us beforehand to show us that he is God. Jesus is a priest king, but he's also a prophet, which means that he speaks for God. And of course, he is God. And in addition to Jesus's powerful, authoritative, authoritative teaching, we have also witnessed in the gospel of John seven signs or wonders which Jesus has performed that all of them point us to the fact that he's God, that he's Jesus in the flesh. And another amazing quality of the attribute of Jesus as being divine is his ability not only to do these miracles, but to give clear and accurate prophecy about the future. We say, well, who's the greatest witness that ever lived? We said the Lord Jesus. Well, who's the greatest prophet in the Bible? The Lord Jesus, right? He's prophet, priest, and king. Those are offices that Christ fulfills. And he gives here in this passage very clear prophecy about the fact that he's going and about the fact that he's coming back. And he does this so that when it happens, the disciples would believe in him with even greater vigor, with even greater conviction, with either, even greater confidence that Jesus is the Christ and that he is God. 
I mean, if somebody promised you something over and over, maybe you had a parent growing up and you grew up in a, in a home that was maybe tough and your dad kept promising you something or your mama kept promising you something and it just never happened. Or maybe you've had a friend and they just kept promising, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and it never happens. What happens after a while, you just learn to be like, you know what, I don't trust that person. I don't trust them. They keep promising. They keep telling me this is going to happen and it never happens. Listen to me this morning. Jesus isn't like that. He's not like that for one moment. What he promises, he delivers every time. Every time what he promises, he will fulfill that promise, which ought to just increase our faith and increase our confidence. And so this is part of how Jesus shows that he's God, that he's prophesying what will happen because only God, according to maybe the disciples' understanding of the God of the Old Testament, only God can speak prophecy and it would come forth just like he said. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 9, God says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In other words, he's just saying in that passage that God declares new things. And before they happen, they spring, before they spring forth in the future, God tells us about them. And God knows what's going on because he ordains all that happens. And so we know that God is a God who gives us prophecy through those prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah of the Old Testament. In fact, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things yet not done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so God over and over again tells us what's going to happen, and then it happens just like he said. His word always accomplishes all that it was intended to accomplish. His word will never return void. And so when Jesus tells us what's going to happen before it happens, it's just another way for him to show us that he's God. And not only that, your next blank says that it's a way to expose false gods as incapable. It's a way for him to expose false gods as incapable. Only God can predict the future. Did you know that? Only God can predict the future. False gods can't. Fortune tellers can't. Palm readers can't. So if you've ever been to one of those, which I've never been, and I don't recommend it, all right? But they, they, they do things like they look at your hand and like, oh, I see this line. And you see this line, you're about to cross. You're going to go through a trial in your life. You know, it's like, duh. You know, it's like, it's like you know, like, like, like they're telling you something you don't know. You know, it's like only God can tell you the future. Not even Satan knows the future. Demons don't know the future. You say, well, Adam, how come sometimes they come true? Because sometimes they might. But a lot of times they don't. And the consequence of false prophecy in the Old Testament is off with his head. Like if you miss it even one time, you're done. And you're declared a false prophet. So you can't play around with people who are like, well, they get it right sometimes. Yeah, but they miss it a whole lot. And they don't talk about the times they miss it. You don't hear about that. You hear about the one or two guesses that happen to come true. And it has nothing to do with them having any knowledge or spiritual strength or ability. It has everything that to do with it just being a deceiver, just throwing out stuff all the time and then claiming what they said comes true. I mean, listen to what God says about this in Isaiah 48, verse 3 and verse 5. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. 
my carved image and my metal image commanded them. So God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. It's going to happen. So you'll know that I'm God. And it's not your idol, and it's not your image, and it's not whatever it is that you worship. Only God can bring that to pass. And that way, no one could ever say that somehow it came from an idol. In fact, I told you that it's death for the false prophet, Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? And when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, then that word that the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. So he's basically saying, well, how do you know if it's a true prophet or a false prophet? The false prophet's going to get it wrong. And as soon as he gets it wrong, then you can identify that's not right. You know, there's all these people over the course of even the last century that tried to predict the second coming of Christ. Even the Jehovah Witnesses predicted that Christ was coming back in 1925 and in 1975. And they got certain things in the Watchtower magazine. There was a book when I was growing up as a kid that said 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. And I remember that whole year I was scared. I mean, that whole year, I'm like, man, this is 88. He's coming in 88. I got to get ready. You know, and then he never came. You know, there was the whole ridiculous thing about 2016, right? Recently from the Mayan calendars, there was that movie about 2016, the world's going to end. It's all baloney because no man knows the day or the hour, right? So anybody who ever professes they know, I mean, the, the, the worst one is those guys who prey on poor little girls and say, I know I'm supposed to marry you. God told me to marry you. You know, that's just weird, right? <laughs> Girls, run out the door and run back home to mama and get some help. If some guy's telling you that, they don't know, right? So anybody who's saying that thus saith the Lord, something's going to happen, or God told me this is going to happen, just don't believe it. You can only believe God's word. You can only believe the word of God. The next blank says this also is to bring about saving faith for the believer. So Jesus tells us ahead of time, Obviously, to help produce faith in our heads and our hearts as we understand that what he said comes true just the way he said it would come true. And because it always comes true, God will give you greater confidence in him, greater security in him, greater boldness, a greater excitement, a greater joy to read the words of Christ, knowing that Jesus speaks the truth. It means he's God. He's exposing the devil and any false teaching. And this ought to just give you great confidence and great encouragement as it's those truths that are being spoken. I mean, what would you have thought about Jesus if he predicted or prophesied that he would die on the cross, be raised from the dead? And he didn't then you wouldn't be a believer. You'd be like, well, he lied. But guess what he did? He did. He died just like he said he would, and he's come back to life, and now he's at the right hand of the Father, which gives you even greater confidence that he's coming back, and that he loves you, and that he cares for you, and that he's doing what's best for you. Let's move on. Third question, number three, does the ruler of the world have any power over Jesus? I love verse 30. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. 
he has no claim on me. The ruler of this world is a reference to Satan. John 12, 31 says the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus said in John 16, 11, that the ruler of this world will be judged. So Jesus is saying, I don't have much more time because Satan's about to come do his thing. And guess what? That's okay. Because even that is ordained. In fact, it was Jesus who said to Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. And so while Satan had entered into Judas, according to John 13, 27, Jesus is still in control. And so the question that I'm asking is, does the ruler of this world have any power over Jesus? Let me give you two ways to answer it. A, he never has. He never has. Satan has been trying to disrupt God's redemptive plan for mankind from the very beginning. There was the fall of Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell in the garden into sin after being tempted by the servant. There is Cain killing Abel, which at that time wiped out half of the offspring on earth. There was Satan's attempt to start a new race of people in Genesis 6. There was the great wickedness of man, no doubt influenced by Satan, that caused God to send a worldwide flood. There was the tower of Babel in Genesis 11, which required God's intervention again. And all of these were early attempts of Satan to somehow trying to disrupt and jettison God's plan of redemption. There's the nation of Israel that was enslaved by the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. There were all the wicked kings of Judah and of Israel. There were all the attempts of the Old Testament to silence the prophets of God. There was Israel's disobedience, which led them into exile in Babylon. There are all kinds of examples in the Old Testament of Satan's attempt to disrupt God's plan. The devil also did his best to wipe Jesus out from his birth, when Jesus was an infant, Satan prompted Herod to try to kill Jesus along with the other baby boys of Bethlehem. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Satan tempted him in the wilderness. According to Luke 4.13 and Hebrews 4.15, Satan continued to tempt Jesus throughout his life. One of Jesus' own disciples betrayed him. His own nation rejected him. In the Garden of Gethsemane was a time when Jesus sweat drops of blood. Satan tried to kill Jesus multiple times before the cross, and Satan never succeeded in killing Jesus until now. But wait, was this really Satan's successful plan coming together, or was this God's plan? Was the cross Satan's plan, or was it God's plan? My answer would simply be, it was God's plan all along. All along, according to Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here's what the Bible teaches. The crucifixion was actually according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And the timing was perfect according to the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. And the mode of death was exact according to Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And the purpose of Jesus' death was beautiful according to Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so actually... What we are seeing in Jesus' lifelong conflict with the devil, it's going to reach its triumphant climax on the cross. The cross was actually God's plan of crushing his son 
to provide redemption for the world. But the cross was also God's plan for destroying Satan forever. Talk about Satan being a mess. He thinks he's finally winning by getting Christ to the cross. And God's like, oh, actually, that was my plan all along. I wouldn't let you do it then, and I wouldn't let you do it then, and I wouldn't let you do it then, but now I'm ordaining it'll be done on this day in history because it's God's plan. And in that moment, he provides life for every repentant sinner. And in that same moment, he crushes Satan forever. Listen to 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to save us from our sin and to destroy the works of the devil. Speaking of Jesus in Hebrews 2.14, the writer says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. What does the cross do? It saves you from your sin, and it destroys the devil. All that to say, Satan has never had any claim on Jesus for even one minute of redemptive history, for even one second of Jesus' life on earth. Satan has never had any claim on Jesus. And your next blank says, he never will. He never has, and he never will. And when Jesus says he has no claim on me, this word claim is actually just simply the word no. It means no, no one, and nobody. It means nothing, never, and no how. Jesus is using a double negative here for emphasis. Jesus is literally saying Satan has no, nothing on me. I mean, how could Satan have any hold on Jesus? Satan's kingdom is of this world. But Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. How could Satan have any claim on Jesus? Jesus had never sinned. Jesus had never compromised. Jesus had never done anything wrong. The law of sin and death doesn't apply to Jesus because he had never sinned. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was pure. And Jesus always possessed all power over death and all power over the grave and all power over Satan. The cross marked Satan's ultimate defeat. Though the final sentence against him will not be carried out until the end of time when he's cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20 verse 10, it was already done. And it was done on the cross. And Satan has no claim on Jesus. And if you are in Jesus today, if you are in Christ today, then Satan has no claim on you. You understand that? He had a claim on you. He never had one on Jesus. But when you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, when you were depraved, he had his claim on you. You were following the prince of the power of the air. But in that moment, when your heart was regenerated by the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Satan no longer has any claim, no nothing on you. You're a child of God. You don't have to succumb to addiction. You don't have to succumb to depression. You don't have to succumb to any temptation. 
Now, obviously we do. We are human. We struggle. We stumble. We fall. But I'm just reminding you this morning, church, Satan has no claim on you. Do you believe that this morning? Are you looking to Christ this morning? Are you claiming the fact? And I'm not, I know you guys think I'm still half charismatic. I'm not, all right? I'm not. (laughs) But I'm just saying, he's got no claim on you. You belong to God. Give your heart to God. Walk in the holiness of God. You are able in Christ to say, you know what? He's got no hold of me. Zero. Zero hold of me. It's James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. He's going to flee. Problem is, we're not doing the submitting to God, and we're not doing the resisting in the word of God. But if you do, and when you do, he always flees. He has no claim on you. Last question I want to ask you this morning. Number four, what does Jesus' obedience to the Father show us? Verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know, there's the title of our sermon, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. What does Jesus' obedience to the Father show us? Number one, A, it shows us that he is holy. I just want us to be reminded that Jesus is holy. He never sinned. He did all that the Father commanded him to do. He didn't leave out one single thing. He was completely obedient. He was always joyful in his work. He was always walking in step with God. And obedience is not easy. And sometimes obedience leads to heartache and pain. But we need to obey no matter what. And Jesus obeyed no matter what. And sometimes we may not want to obey. And we may feel like we can't do what God's calling us to do. And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit to come in and and strengthen us. He already dwells in us if you're in Christ and to give you that power that you can do just like what Jesus did. Jesus did everything the father called him to do. So can you in the strength that he provides. The second little blank there says that he loves the father. The fact that Jesus was completely obedient to the father, it shows us that he's holy because he never sinned. And it shows us number two or B in your outline that he loves the father. You remember throughout this whole chapter, Jesus has been saying what? If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. If you love me, you're going to do this. Now Jesus is saying, guess what? I love the father in verse 31. I'm going to obey the father I'm going to go to the cross because I love the Father. I can't be telling you, if you love me, you'll obey me, and then say, I love the Father, but I'm not going to obey the Father. Jesus is our example. Jesus is the one who goes before us, who obeyed perfectly. That's the active righteousness of Christ. He never sinned. He fulfilled fully in every way, and it shows us that he loves the Father. One last blank here. It also shows us how to be a powerful witness to the world, kind of putting the bookends on the beginning of the message and the end of the message. You want to be a witness like Christ? Jesus was the greatest witness the world has ever known. And in verse 31, he did everything the Father commanded. Why? So that, Hannah Claus, the whole point, the purpose, the result is, so that the world may know that I love the Father. How's the world going to know, Placerita, that you love the Father? You've got to walk in obedience to the Son. Just as Jesus walked in obedience to his father, as we walk in obedience to God's word, the world will know 
Because they see in your life a difference. They see in your life a greater joy. They see in your life that you're not controlled by money. And you're not controlled by the culture. And you're not controlled by another person. You're controlled by a living God. And they start to ask questions about, well, why do you act like that in your marriage? And why would you discipline your kids? And why do you give so much of your money to God's work at your church? And why are you there every Sunday when you could be just recreating on a whole other day? And you say, it's because I love God and I love Christ and he changed my life. And as you walk in obedience, both in the privacy of your home and in the public opportunities you have at school and at work in your neighborhood, people are going to know. People are going to be like, wow, those, those people are like actually living out what they say they believe. Now, we still stumble. We still fall. I understand that. You understand that. But we're saying that overall, the character, characterization of your life and the power of the Spirit hopefully is, you know what? I want to be a witness for Christ. Man, when you were reading all those things about D.L. Moody, Moody and Billy Sunday and Billy Graham and all these great missionaries of, uh, of William Carey and uh, of Hudson Taylor, and, and uh, you know, when we read that, hopefully you're inspired by that. And you're just like, man, that was a great witness. That woman was a great witness for God. That man was a great witness for God. I want to be a great witness for God. Well, how do you become a great witness for God? You obey him. You walk in obedience in every area of your life so that the world will know that you love God and that your love is demonstrated in your obedience and it's demonstrated in your worship and it's demonstrated in what you talk about and what you spend your time doing. Oh, church, that the world would know that you love God, that you love Christ, that he's first in every place in your life. Pray with me that God would help us live like that this week. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to look at your word today. God, we confess that we all fall short of the ideal of perfection, of matching up to that example of the Lord Jesus Christ. But instead of throwing up our hands and saying, I just can't do it, God, I pray that you would light a fire in our hearts today that we would see Christ in all of his glory and that we would just realize Satan has no claim on me. And so I'm going to walk as an overcomer today. I'm going to walk in truth today. I'm going to walk in grace today. I want to walk as a radical witness for Christ today. I'm tired of doing it halfway. I'm tired of being lazy. I'm tired of sitting back. I want to get in the game, God. Help me today to have opportunities to glorify you Help me to be a strong witness for Christ. Help me to be unashamed. Give me that boldness, God, that in my own personality and within my own sphere of influence, I would live in such a way that this very week that would cause the world to know that we love God, that we've been transformed by his grace, and that we worship God as our sovereign king and the Lord Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead all through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.